Well, I've told you before, um, many of you know Arvid, a friend of mine here. Arvid didn't know he was going to be an illustration this morning, but he is. Uh, Arvid is a, a guy who I really appreciate. He's a real manly man. He's the kind of guy that uh, makes you feel like you wish that you were more manly like Arvid, right? Uh, strong leader, love the guy. Um, so you just need to know that leading into this part of the story. Uh, my wife, I've told you before, also uh, loves to play this game with my kids. So for instance, uh, she'll take our kids to the zoo and she'll say, let's just imagine the worst possible scenario that could break out. What if a bear or a tiger were to get loose? What would you do? And, and then we start having a dialogue about it, right? And so one day we're at the zoo and we're playing through the same uh, little scenario that we usually do. And she, we have Benjamin, who at the time is six, and Johnny, who's four. And she says, okay, guys, stop. What if right now a tiger were to get out of the cage or a bear, what would you do? And Benjamin quickly, I mean, not even a hesitation, says, I would jump behind Arvid, mommy. <laughs> now, you have to remember, I'm like right there. And I said, hold on. I said, Benjamin, what about dad? Right? I'm, I'm here. And he said, oh, yeah, daddy, you should jump behind Arvid too. <laughs> now, that was in some ways emasculating right there with my kids. Um, but I think that what they had in mind was, was that if danger comes, I want the most powerful being that I know here in human form to be in front of me and in between me and the bear, Right? Well, in the same way, when we come to our text this morning, what we find is, is we find the scribes looking at Jesus, who is performing these mighty, powerful acts, unlike anything that they've seen before. And as they're looking at Jesus, they're sitting there saying to themselves, we've never seen anything like this. And so what this must be, it must be a demon, and not just a demon, not any demon, because this guy, I mean, he's, he's large, like in the way that he acts. I think he's the prince of demons. He must be the body incarnate of Satan himself. And, and what we find is, is that that's the, the discussion that they're having this morning. Who is this powerful being that is before us? And they are claiming that he is empowered by an evil spirit. We're picking right up in the middle of our amazing story, true story of Jesus series in the Gospel of Mark this morning. We're going to be in chapter 3 that we just read, verses 22 to 35. And this is where we find Jesus continuing to be confronted by the religious elite, right? Back in chapter 2, we started finding that he is being confronted continuously by the scribes and the Pharisees about who he is, what he's doing it, and why they're doing it, why the disciples are acting the way they are. Now, last week, you'll remember that Justin, Justin McClendon did an excellent job. Didn't Justin do a great job last week? I mean, he just did fantastic. Thank you, Justin, for serving us in that way. But uh, he showed us how Jesus inaugurated his ministry choosing 12 disciples. And, and he reminded us that, hey, 12 disciples, that reminds us of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so Jesus is doing something new here. And he ended, the text ended yesterday with a really strange scene, right? He's talking about these 12 disciples and about this new kingdom of God that is coming in. And in the midst of that, we have this strange scene where his family shows up and they're seeking to seize him, which is a word that means almost to arrest. They're looking to almost arrest their brother because they're saying to others that he must be out of his mind. Right? So we need to get this guy some help. Like the things that you're doing, they don't make sense. 
Well, our scene this morning picks up with what seems to be a fresh envoy of scribes sent from Jerusalem to start another fight with Jesus. Uh, You know, before it seems like the fights just kind of happened, but here it's almost like these guys have come ready to start a fight. And they are locked and loaded with their claims. And what they say is, is that Jesus, he is led by the power of Satan. Now, here's the main thing that I want us to see today in this text. I I think this is completely linked with what Justin preached last week. And we're going to see here in this text, our big idea is this. The Holy Spirit empowers and unites us, being Christians. The Holy Spirit empowers and unites us. And we're going to see this in a a couple of different ways. The The first is this. We'll notice in verses 22 to 30 that Jesus, Jesus isn't possessed by Satan He's empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus is going to tell us. He's not possessed by Satan. He's empowered by the Holy Spirit. Now first, uh, look with me again in verse 22, where the scribes claim Jesus is possessed by Satan. That's the problem. So here we find in verse 22, uh, Jesus had a number of accusations brought up against him. And this time we have the scribes coming in and they say this. After they came down from Jerusalem, they were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons, he cast out demons. Now, maybe you're wondering who Beelzebul is here. Uh, It's a name that means Lord of the house. Now, when you look at that, you might think, well, it looks a little similar to like Beelzebub, and I know that's in the Bible somewhere. Well, that's, of course, back in 2 Kings uh, 2.1, where we have Elijah, um, who is confronting this Canaanite god, who is Beelzebub. We think that that might be like a, sort of a play on Beelzebul. Uh, Beelzebub means Lord of the Flies. Now, you obviously know that where there are flies or something stinky, and so he's kind of making fun of their gods. That's what they think's happening. But we don't know really who Beelzebul is here, uh, other than that Mark seems clearly to think that this God represents Satan himself, and that Beelzebul is a name of Satan, that archdemon who leads other demons and serves as a representative head of all opposition to God. That's who they understand Beelzebul to be. Now, catch this. In Matthew and Luke, we're told that... In this kind of scene, scribes are accusing Jesus of being empowered by Satan. But here Mark ups the ante and he claims that Jesus is actually possessed by Satan. Not just empowered, possessed. And that's how he exercises demons. Now elsewhere, the Pharisees charge Jesus with sorcery. And really sorcery is the same kind of thing. See, sorcery is saying, we have seen that you do supernatural acts, that you have supernatural power. But we are attributing that power to an evil force rather than to God. And that's exactly the thing the Pharisees are doing here. Now, what do you think, or what do you say, when someone says you're possessed by Satan? How do you respond to that? I think what I would probably say is, no, I'm not, right? Well, Jesus does say that, but he says more than that. So look what he says in verses uh, 23 to 27. His response, as he responds to them, he responds to them in three parables, okay? And what Jesus' response is, these three parables unfold for us is this point. His response, it could be encapsulated as this, 
I'm stronger than Satan, okay? (laughs) I'm so strong you think I'm possessed by Satan. I'm stronger than Satan. That's his response, and he gives three parables to show this. Now, if you're wondering what a parable is, it's just an illustration that kind of compares two things to, to make a point. And so here, listen to these three parables in verses 23 to 27 and see if you can pick the three out and hear what Jesus says. Here's what he says. He says, it says in 23, and he, being Jesus, called them to him and he said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. And then indeed, he may plunder his house. So here, we see the first two parables are are pretty obvious. They're kind of easy, right? We see the parable of the kingdom and the parable of the house. And Jesus basically says, if, if Satan leads all demons and he's undoing what's, uh, what he's done in his kingdom, his kingdom cannot stand. And if, in the same way, in his house, if his house is divided and, and it's divided against itself, then how can that house stand? Now, that makes sense. I think mo- many of us get that, right? Like if you have a house that is in turmoil, uh, it is hard to stick together and to do anything that is productive and fruitful, right? Uh, so that's why um, with, with my kids, um, it's, I just told them it's law in our house that if you're going to live in my house and under my roof, you're going to root for the New Orleans Saints, right? doesn't matter if they're losing. It doesn't matter if the highlight reel of the whole season for you is the puncher and the field goal kicker. Like that is our team. Like my grandfather rooted for the Saints. My dad rooted for the Saints. I rooted for the Saints, and you're going to root for the Saints. Uh, now, Benjamin came home. He made a new friend one day, and he said, hey, Daddy, uh, my friend roots for Dallas, and I think I'm going to root for Dallas now. And I said, well, that's fine. That's okay, right? You can root for Dallas. You can root for the Cowboys if you want to. I don't like the Cowboys. But if you want to, you can root for them. And he said, well, thanks, Dad. You're taking this really well. I said, oh, no problem. Now, how does your friend's dad feel about the fact that he's going to have to support you now? <laughs> and he's like, wait, What? I was like, oh yeah, like you, you can root for the saints, but you're not living, I mean, you can root for the Cowboys, but you're not living in this house, right? It's what we do, we're Vincent's, it's our house, we can't be divided about these things, right? Like, it's going to tear the home apart. But on a serious note, I mean, you know that like in your home, you, you've got to be together. You, you know what it feels like in the rest of life when there's turmoil at home. It's not just that when mama's not happy, nobody's happy. When daddy's not happy, nobody's happy. I mean, when the, the kids are not, not happy. When there's not joy and peace in the home, it, it really affects everything, doesn't it? It affects the way that you go to work, the way that you live. Now, let me just encourage you. We're not going to hang out here too long, but I think this is just a really obvious and good reason for why if you're single, let me encourage you, pursue relationships if you're looking for marriage or dating, which if you're pursuing dating, it should be towards marriage, with those who are Christians. Uh, I just want you to know that As a Christian, it is important to be married with a Christian because if you want to grow up and lead kids to love Jesus, you want to know that your spouse is going to be right there in the game with you, that they're looking to lead your children to Christ with the same heart that you are, that they are praying alongside you to come to Christ so that you're not concerned about praying for your spouse to come to Christ so that you too can pray for your kids together to come to Christ. And if you're already married, 
Let me, let me say this. Um, you, you've got a family, you've got a home. It is critical that we are, um, we are extremely intentional about bringing peace into our homes. Uh, we need to fight for peace in the homes. Now, I know some of your personalities are probably like mine. You'd rather like, if there's a, a conflict, just walk away and let it fix itself, and then you can come back to the peaceful situation. Uh, let me just let you know, after about, uh, you know, 11 years of marriage, 12 years of marriage, sorry, babe, uh, that that thing does not happen automatically. Like in this life, in a sinful, fallen world, peace doesn't just, if you just leave things together, they don't just like put themselves together, Right? I mean, you don't take a box of Legos and dump it out and then step back and say, I expect that thing to come together just right, do you? Well, how much less do you expect peace in this broken world to come together if you just leave it? It takes intentionality. It takes having hard conversations. It takes pursuing reconciliation. And friends, a lot of us, the reason that we struggle with reconciliation outside of the home with others is because we haven't started the hard work of reconciliation in the home. Let's have a house that's not divided and see what kind of fruit God might bear in our lives out of that. But there's a third illustration or uh, parable that he gives us here. Here you'll notice that he ends with uh, another parable that is not quite as clear in verse, 30, in verse 27. I mean, when you read it, uh, you might think to yourself, this seems confusing. See, he says again, no one, this is the third parable, no one can enter a man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Now, I'm sure you had three questions like I did when I read this text. You're thinking to yourself, okay, who's the strong man? And then who's the stronger man? And then what are these plundered goods, right? Well, commentator J.A. France clarifies this. Hear what he says. I think this is really helpful. He says, the strong man is Satan, but the stronger man is Jesus, who was in the process of tying up Satan and carrying off his possessions those whom he controlled, by exercising out demons. But did you catch that? Everyone's amazed by Jesus' power. And so the scribes claim that it's Satan that has possessed him. And Jesus says, Satan may be the strong man in your eyes, but catch this, I'm the stronger man. Right? I'm the stronger man. Don't miss this, because it's important, I believe, for us to remember still yet today. We need to be reminded of this point this morning. I believe every person in this room needs to be reminded of this reality. See, Satan may be the strong man, but Jesus is the stronger man. And the Bible tells us we are surrounded by demonic forces. And that's why Paul tells us in Ephesians 6.11, right? You remember there he tells us to strap up. He says you need to strap up with the full armor of God. Like you don't need to just be wandering out of the house in the morning. You need to be strapped up and ready because you are going to be fighting the schemes of the devil. And you can't do that without the help of God. We see demonic power on display all over the New Testament. Not just in our lives, but in the New Testament. Uh, You'll remember in Acts 19, there's a great scene of the power of demonic forces. Uh, That's the scene where we find that the the Spirit is so powerful with Paul that people are taking his handkerchiefs, that's right, his hankies, to people possessed by demons and touching them, right? Not used hanky, just touching them, and they're being healed. And people are like, are you kidding me? Like, we can't do that with everything that's in us, and this guy's got a hanky that he emails in, and he's relieving people of demon possession. They had never seen anything like this. So there were some 
sons, seven sons of a high priest named Sceva. And, and they said, you know what? This is awesome. We want to have power like that. So they ease up on this man who is in a house and he's possessed by a demon. They said, we're going to try this out for ourselves. And they say to this demon, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. That's all they say. I adjure you. I'm not sure what adjure means, but I think it means you need to go now. And, and, And this is what happens. Catch this. The demon spoke back to them. I don't know if they were ready for that. And the demon says, Jesus, I know. And Paul, I recognize but who are you? Right? Who are you? And Acts 19.16 says, The demon-possessed man whooped all seven of them so badly that they ran out of the house, and it says they were naked and bruised. Now, I grew up in southern Mississippi, and people fought a lot. And let me just say, if anybody's ever running out of a house naked and bruised, it means they lost pretty badly. And if there are seven who are filing out naked and bruised together, one after the other, then you know that it's been a really bad day and you don't want to see what's in that house. Friends, that's the power of demonic warfare on display in the book of Acts 19. Now, some of you might be thinking to yourself, that terrifies me. I mean, that kind of power, I I haven't seen that and I don't want to see that. Hope I never see that, right? Never see that on display before me. And maybe you're thinking, I need to look away from this text, but don't miss this. This text showing us the power of demonic forces, what it says to us and what it ought to say to you and me me is, is that we don't serve a weak Jesus. You catch it? Jesus' apostle touches a hanky that removes a demon that goes out and destroys seven men. That is the power of Christ. And we should all take spiritual opposition seriously. But don't miss this. We don't serve a weak Jesus. Jesus defeated Satan at the cross. He beat that ancient dragon with his own stick. And we don't want to miss the fact that he is Lord of lords and King of kings with whom no evil can compare or or fight back. Colossians 2.15 tells us that God nailed our trespasses on the cross of Christ Where we are told, he also disarmed the rulers and authorities, those demonic forces, and put them to an open shame by triumphing over them in him. You see it? In Christ, he he has defeated all forces of evil, Satan and all that follow him. I think there's a message here for for all of us. Uh, If you're here this morning and you're a non-Christian, don't miss this. Like, we can't look at this And not take this seriously if we really are believing God to be who He says He is. This means that none of us are safe left to ourselves. And I just want you to know, if you're a non-Christian, you are not safe from evil. And maybe you feel safe. Maybe you don't think about evil that much. And maybe you don't think about God that much. But the message of the Bible isn't a message that you are safe and that you're okay. So you, you are not clever are stronger than Satan. And you're in danger. But, hear me, there's a message here for you this morning that is filled with hope. And that is that there is a greater fear that we ought to have. And that greater fear is the wrath of God. See, if we are against God, it's fearsome to have Him against us. But, hear me, in Christ, the God who 
brings fear into the eyes of Satan as a God who will fight for you if you are in Christ. You see it? You don't have to be afraid anymore. The message of the Bible is, is that you ought to fear God's wrath. You ought to fear evil. But you don't have to if you're in Christ. He will make you part of His forever family. And so this morning, what God would have you do as you read texts like this, as you are confronted with the reality of the danger that you have before God's wrath and evil, it's that you're invited to run. Run not away from evil, but run to Christ. And God will not only forgive your sins, He will adopt you into His forever family. In fact, did you know that running to God is actually running from evil? It's just the the turn that you make. When When you run to Jesus, you are running away from living for this world. In fact, James 4 says this. He promises that when you resist the devil, friend, he will flee from you. Not because you are great, but because your God is great. And when he sees you turn from him, he sees you turn towards God. And when he sees God in the distance and you going towards him, it scares him to death. See, God promises that if you draw near to Him in faith, He will draw near to you. And maybe that's why you're here this morning. It's because you need to draw near to the God who promises He will draw near to you in Christ. Friend, don't leave here today if you have not drawn near to Christ and put your faith in Him and grasped a hold of Him. Don't leave this building. You're not promised another day. Trust in Christ. Talk to me. Talk to one of our elders. Talk to one of the Christians in this room. We would love nothing more than to show you the hope that is available to you in Christ. But there's another thing that I think that we need to notice here, not just for non-Christians, but for Christians. Maybe this sounds really basic to you. That Jesus is strong. You're like, yeah, absolutely, that's great. Jesus is strong. But as basic as this sounds, I believe that a weak faith is tied to often a weak view of Jesus. See, if we see Jesus as being weak, it is going to affect the way that we live out our Christian lives day in and day out. It's going to affect our family lives. It's going to affect our work lives. We will be different people based on this fact. Whether or not we see Jesus as strong like no other or weak. Now, I'm not just talking about a doctrinal creed. I'm talking about a faith that grasps a hold of the hand of your strong Savior that lifted you up out of judgment and wrath. And placed you into the forever family of God. See, a weak Jesus makes for a weak faith. And all of our hearts, I believe, need to be reminded this morning that Jesus is stronger than Satan. Jesus is stronger than Satan. Let let that sink in just for a moment. How might you be subtly thinking of Jesus as weak in your heart this morning? Maybe you're like me when I was a child. I remember when I was younger... I was probably about five years old, and I remember sitting in my bed paralyzed by fear of a sense of an evil presence in my room in the dark of night. And I remember that's when I began to pray to Christ at five years old. I I was praying and I was saying, Lord, I am scared and fearful, and I need your help tonight. I need your protection. Jesus, protect me. Jesus, help me. And friends, in in that moment, I sensed the presence of Christ protecting me. I sensed that He was answering the prayers of a child for protection. And so maybe that's you. You're, You're just wrapped up today in anxiety and fear. 
Maybe it's not your bed. Maybe it's like every day as you're walking day by day. You are just fearful and you're paralyzed by fear. And you just need to be reminded that all of those evil things and Satan who is behind all of those evil things that cause you to fear, all of those things, let me, let me, let me say it again. Jesus is stronger. You can trust the mighty hand of Christ who is for you. Or maybe this morning it's something else that has caused you to feel a sense that Jesus is weak. Now please hear me. Not that you are weak, but that Jesus is weak. We are weak, but we have started maybe in some ways to begin to think that it is Jesus that is weak. Maybe you have been this week challenged. Your perception of the power of Jesus has been challenged by like sickness or death. Right? Like sickness comes in, death comes your way, and you're confronted with those realities, and and you begin to to quiver before them, and and you forget the strength and the power of Christ that is for you, right? And all of a sudden, it's Jesus that begins to seem weak to you. You start asking if Jesus really can heal, and why doesn't he? Or maybe you're entangled in sin this morning. You have some sin that has, has taken a hold of you and, and has had a hold of you. And, and you've begun in your heart to blame Jesus for not delivering you, right? It's not my fault for not fighting the sin. It's Jesus for not delivering me. It must be the weakness of Christ that can't be my weakness. I can't be the problem. Or maybe you think that this morning it's, it's hard for you to come before Christ and you are paralyzed by past sins, fearing that Jesus only saves the low-hanging fruit. You know what I'm talking about? Jesus only saves the low-hanging fruit. Good people, not people like you, not people with pasts like yours. And, and, and so you, you just are paralyzed thinking there's no way that this good Christ could love someone like me and die for a person like me. I mean, if he knew me, he wouldn't forgive a person like me. People like me don't get forgiven. Or on the other hand, maybe you're a pretty good person. And Jesus didn't really need to lift as hard, right, when he was raising you up out of the wrath of God. Like, you were just a little bit lighter than the next guy, right? I don't have as many sins holding me back. Like, it was, I think Jesus probably basically just kind of one-armed it with me. I mean, that guy was two, but, but with me, it was one. Maybe even a pinky. I just was a good guy. Because Jesus, he didn't need his full strength from me. Maybe you don't share Christ with others because you fear that his good news is weak. Maybe it's the power of God unto salvation for the Jew first and then to the Greek. But your neighbor's from Chicago, right? And you're just not sure that that God of Paul in Romans 1.16, who just knows the power of God is strong, and the guy who had those magic hankies, like maybe he was strong, but not, not me. The gospel doesn't work like that for me. Well, friends, hang with me. I think even our redeemed hearts are so bent that when the sufferings of this like shock our systems, and they do shock us, we're so confident in ourselves that our hearts would charge the King of glory with weakness before recognizing the depths of our own weakness. You, you see it? Like the real question isn't whether or not there's weakness in the room. The question is, whose weakness is it? And we would rather say Christ is weak than we are weak. So rather than confessing our own weakness, we call Jesus weak in our hearts. Friends, Paul faced this this thorn that he had in his flesh in 2 Corinthians 12, 9-10. And you'll remember that he too struggled with it. He prayed three times that the Lord would remove it from him. And he remembers when God 
responded to him. And here's what he said to him amidst these sufferings as he's questioning and he's thinking to himself, I need to see the power of God on display. Here's what God says to Paul and what he might be saying to you this morning. My grace is sufficient for you. It's sufficient. That means it's powerful enough for you. For my power, my power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, with insults, hardships, with persecutions, and calamities. Here's what he says. For when I am weak, then I am strong. My brothers and sisters, please hear me. <clears throat> I know how it is to feel the weakness and the frailty of this life and begin to just ask Jesus questions about why you can't see his strength like you want to. But let me just tell you from personal experience, the power of Christ shows up more brightly in our weakness than in our strength. And that's both with us internally and our experience with God. And that's also with the way that God see, others see God in us is we are weak, but we look to a strong God. See, it's at the foot of the cross, it's, it's at the foot of our own crosses that we carry, that we learn desperate dependence on Christ's strength and not our own. And maybe that's you today. You're wondering why you haven't seen God show up. Could it be that this morning, what God wants you to have for Him is something that you have not been willing to give Him, and that is a desperate dependence upon him and you have fought it to the very grave and what God wants in you is for his power to be made known in your weakness brothers and sisters God wants to use you in powerful ways but that powerful way that he wants to be shown in your life might be in what feels like utter weakness and yet you must trust that that is exactly the way that God loves to work Jesus he immediately, after this experience, turns to one of the hardest verses in the Bible, where he speaks of the unforgivable sin. Uh, so that's where he goes to next in verses 28 to 30. Look there with me at what he says. This is the unforgivable sin. He says this, truly I say to you, in verse 28, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man. And whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Now, this verse is both hopeful and terrifying all at the same time, isn't it? I mean, you'll notice that he begins by saying that all of the sins of the children of man will be forgiven, including all blasphemies. I mean, that's hopeful. Like, there is forgiveness of sins that is possible. In fact, you'll remember that pretty much most of the time when Jesus forgives sins or tells people that there's forgiveness of sins, that's when the Pharisees get really mad and say that he's blaspheming, right? Because only God can do that. But what Jesus says is, is there is forgiveness of sins that is coming, that is to be found in me. Now, you might be thinking, what is blasphemy? Well, blasphemy can mean to slander, revile, defame, uh, speak irreverently or dis disrespectfully of. And you'll remember that the Pharisees continuously charged, charged Jesus with this. But you'll notice that here Jesus isolates one sin as an unforgivable sin. 
blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Right? So blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, it's an eternal sin, can't be forgiven from it. Now, we see this kind of thing spoken of elsewhere in the Bible. You remember in Matthew 12. In Matthew 12 too, uh, there's a similar incident where we find uh, Jesus saying, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, Jesus, will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. So that's pretty serious, right? Like there's no possibility of forgiveness, like no second chances, like you're gone. And then in 1 John 5.16, John also seems to mention this when he says, there is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. Now in context, he says you should pray for those who sin, but don't even worry about praying for the one who sins this way that leads to death. Now I know this is a sensitive issue and, um, and this, this can be taken in a lot of different ways. So let's just think about for a second how this has been taken. Louis Burkhoff in his Systematic Theology gives us four ways that people have understood this. Uh, the first he mentions is uh, from uh, like Jerome and Chrysostom. And they said that they believed that this was a kind of sin that you could only commit while Jesus was on earth. So you can't do it anymore. Uh, now, a second way that people took this uh, was like Augustine. Uh, Augustine said what this is is really just persistent unbelief up to death and when you die. And so that's what this unforgivable sin is. So if you put your faith in Jesus, you, you, know, you don't have it. There's always a time to, to escape it as long as you put your faith in Christ. Uh, the third is a, a Lutheran view that came later. And they say that this is actually speaking of Christians who lose their salvation. Uh, now, I just don't see that as being the, the teaching of Scripture at, at large. Um, but I think the fourth option is more likely in this context. See, I believe this is speaking of a non-Christian who commits the sin. I think John Piper explains it well when he writes, The unforgivable sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit as an act of resistance which belittles the Holy Spirit so grievously that he withdraws forever with his convicting power so that we are never able to repent and to be forgiven. Now, you'll notice that these scribes ironically seem to be led by the evil spirit that they are accusing Jesus of being led by. And they are basically publicly giving credit of the Holy Spirit's work in Christ to Satan himself. Now, there are a couple of observations that I want to make here uh, about this sin. Uh, The first is this. uh, This passage ought to warn us not to take the Holy Spirit lightly. Uh, I, I I don't want to deal with this in such a way that we think, oh, well, the Holy Spirit, like, He's not a serious deal anymore, and so we should kind of chill out. I don't think that's the intent of this text. No, I think that what we need to read through here and what Jesus would have us see is, is that whatever this sin is, it is possible to become hardened to the point of no return. I don't know what that is, but there's, there's that place. And the point, the point here isn't to establish some kind of line that we can say, Okay, there's a line, and I'm, I'm on this side, not on that side. And I want to get as close as I can, but just make sure you don't go over. That's not the point of this sin. No, what, what we need to be sensitive to is, is that the Holy Spirit, 
we need to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit and we need to run to Christ and to His people. It is meant to awaken us to our need of more Jesus and Christ and to follow Him. Now, the second point I would make here just briefly is this text isn't meant to horrify those with sensitive consciences. You know, I have Christians constantly, sweet Christians that I, I meet with who come and they are usually, I, I sense usually these folks are more holy than I am. And they are fearful to death that, that God has in some way put them off and they've committed the unpardonable sin and, and that they just cannot get connected with God. And friend, I, I just want you to know that is not the intent of this text. It's not meant to make folks who are seeking God, who are seeking to love Him, not perfectly, but as, as best they can within who God's made them. It's not meant to make you question whether or not God has loved you fully and completely and that He has you wrapped in His hands. It's not what He's saying. I like what John Frame and others have said here. I think it's, it's probably the best quote on this text. It's that if you're worried that you've committed the unforgivable sin, then you can be assured that you probably haven't, right? Because if you're so concerned about the pleasure of God being on you, then you're probably not the defiant one that we find in this text who is publicly calling Satan and the work of the Holy Spirit Satan's work. No, if, if that's you, then my guess is that God has called you to Himself. And that you ought to take comfort in that. These are folks who have run headlong in a rebellion against God. It seems that they, they have even publicly given credit to the Holy Spirit's work to Satan. Well, if you want to talk about that, I'd be happy to talk with you about that later. But now, our second and, and uh, shorter point is this. Jesus creates a new spiritual family in verses 31 to 35. Jesus quote, uh, creates a new spiritual family. So you remember, we just saw that the Holy Spirit empowers... And here what we're going to see is, is the Holy Spirit unites. See, you'll remember last week that Jesus called 12 disciples that reminded us of those 12 tribes of Israel. And Jesus is the long-awaited king who has come to build a new kingdom. But verses 20 to 21 immediately, you remember last week how immediately 20 and 21 turn attention towards Jesus' family. And you might be like, why, is he, why are they looking at Jesus' family now? We were just talking about the new kingdom that has arrived. And it says that the family tried to seize him, saying that he is out of his mind. Well, he talks about the family, and then in the text we just talked about, he talks about the Holy Spirit and blaspheming the Holy Spirit, that the work that Jesus has been doing is the work of the Holy Spirit, and then he's talking about the family again. You see that? It's almost like an exegetical sandwich with the Spirit in the middle. And I believe it's because it's showing the power of the Spirit both to empower Christ and the power that is available in Christ, and then also the power on display in uniting people to one one another. And that's exactly what he talks about here in these verses. Uh, Notice what he says here when he talks about his physical family. This is Jesus' physical family in verses 31 to 35. Listen to what he says. It says, And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside they sent him and called him, and a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. Now, we're going to wrap this up, but a couple things just to acknowledge. One is, this is not Jesus saying that he doesn't love his physical flesh and blood mom and brothers. It's not what he's saying. And he's not saying here that it's okay if you have non-Christian parents not to respect them and honor them. 
And it's not saying that, uh, that if you have Christian parents even, that, it, that you really don't have a tie to them anymore if you're a Christian because you have the family of God. That's not what he's saying here. Now, what, what he's saying, what Jesus is saying, he's, he's coming in and he's giving them a picture of a new family and a new creation that is breaking out. And, and he, when he says, uh, whoever does the will of my father, these are my brothers and sisters, not them. It's a really interesting image that's drawn in this text. Do you notice where his physical family is in relation to the house? Well, it tells us they're outside, Right? And they don't even come in to get Jesus. I don't know if it's because it's so packed that they can't get there. But they remain on the outside and they send a courier inside to tell Jesus, hey, we're here, will you come out so we can arrest you and take you back because we think you're crazy. And, and, and they take the, the letter, hey, your, your family's here. And it's those who are around Christ who are sitting to hear him teach and to listen to him and are trusting him. And he says, these folks, these are those who are my family, those who are here to do the will of the Father. Now, when you think of the will of God, you might be thinking to yourself, oh, he must be talking about the Ten Commandments. Um, could be. I think here, though, what we find is, is that Jesus has shown up as the very revelation from God, right? He is the Word of God come down to us. He is the ultimate revelation that has come to you and me. We see God clearest and know Him most and best in Jesus, who is the God-man. And so as we are thinking about, well, what does it mean to do the will of the Father? What does it mean to do the will of God? I believe it means that they are putting their faith in Him. He is drawing them into Himself and saying, guess what? I am starting a new family. Now hear this. This is Jesus Christ who comes from the line of David. And He looks around Him at His mom and dad, or His mom and brothers, His dad isn't there, but His brothers are there. And He looks at them, flesh and blood. And what does He say? That is not my family. I'm here to create a spiritual family. And those are those who look to me, I believe, the will of God, the revelation from God, who has come to die for your sins and create a new humanity and a new kingdom. It is a new thing that I'm doing. That is why Paul says everywhere, I had to be adopted into the family of God. I was a Jew of Jews. And yet I needed to be adopted. Why? Because he understood that it was a spiritual family. And those who put their faith in Christ received the very Holy Spirit that led Jesus. He is sealed upon their hearts. And that is a, a symbol of the fact that we are part of the family of God. What a picture. What a picture. Now, I think we have a couple of ways we can apply this as we close up. First, Jesus says His literal flesh and blood, being Jews, need to put their faith in Him to be connected to Him and be saved. Everyone receives salvation in Christ alone. We see that elsewhere in the New Testament. I think that's the argument of Romans. See, being a Jew doesn't save them. I think there is a future for Israel. Don't know what that is. Romans seems to say it. I don't know what it is, but I know this. Nobody gets saved that doesn't put their faith in Christ. And Jesus ushers in a new covenant that breaks down the wall of hostility that once divided Jews and Gentiles, creating one new body. And that's why Paul needed to be adopted as a Jew of Jews. The scribes, catch this, the scribes needed Jesus, and they didn't think they did. And Jesus' own brothers and sisters needed Jesus. Everyone must repent and believe the gospel, and that's the only way to find the pleasure of God. But there's a second thing that we find here by way of application, that's this. I believe the more diverse our body looks, the more we show off the power of the gospel. Do you catch it? Like, in my house, Carrie and I, we only tend to have boys. Just the way it works. 
Uh, we once, I, I think we once almost had a girl, but she turned into a boy. I think it's because I'm so masculine. But we only have boys, right? And so if we go around and we have our boys, they all have blonde hair and blue eyes, and they all kind of look alike, and you're like, oh yeah, that's kind of how the world works, right? Everybody looks the same. Well, if we have other kids that come with us that have blonde hair and blue eyes, people just assume they're part of our family. It makes sense. It doesn't cause anybody to like sort of take a double take. You know what causes people to take a double take? Like when you adopt a child that's of another race than you and you're like, what, what? Like, they're definitely not blonde hair, blue eyed. How did that come together? Right? Something unique and different is happening here. Well, imagine a, a group, a gathering of people that have different socioeconomic backgrounds. Some people are poor, some people are rich, some people are of one ethnicity, some of another. Uh, some people are, uh, have power, uh, some have great jobs, some don't. Uh, they're all gathered together, some have great education, some don't, and yet they're gathered together loving one another in such a way that people are scratching their heads and going, what in the world is going on here? I've told you before this story when I was at uh, Capitol Hill Baptist Church, a place where I did my internship. There was a Harvard sociologist who spent his whole life studying people and way, the way they act with one another and why they do it. And he shows up to Capitol Hill Baptist one day. I think he was interested in a girl. And he, and he was watching the congregation. And he said, you know, I came just because I was curious. But what struck me was I was watching over 100 different nations represented, staying after the service, enjoying company with one another, engaged. And here's the thing that really caused me to struggle and caused me to pause and brought me back. It's that all of my studies my whole life told me that that should not be happening. There's something otherworldly that's going on here that this world's science and explanation and sociology cannot explain. And friends, I believe that's exactly what we find Jesus pointing to as he's sitting there with the crowd. And he's saying, I I am beginning a new humanity. People who are different from one another with different gifts and strengths and weaknesses, and I'm bringing them together, united around Jesus, to give glory, glory to God, knowing that the power that has brought us together is not the power of man and his wisdom, but the power of God and his divine wisdom. So I love the fact that we have a diverse body and that we grow increasingly diverse. I believe it shows the power of God on display. So let me just ask you this morning, brothers and sisters, as you're seeking to love people and you're seeking to make relationships, are you looking to put God's love on display and the power of his gospel in the relationships that you're building? Or are you just kind of building relationships with people that are just like you, your same age, your same socioeconomic environment, your same race? Friends, there's nothing wrong with that. But let me just say this, it's not as powerful as whenever we see diverse people loving one another. Older people serving younger people, younger people serving older people. Folks of different ethnicities loving one another, enjoying their company, getting to know each other, valuing their friendship. Friends, that shows the power of the gospel on display. So let me ask you this. Do you see here how the Bible says the power of the Holy Spirit meets unity and uniting a people together? It's the power of the gospel that brings together diverse people for the glory of God. So that God's power is seen most clearly and the unity that brothers and sisters in Christ who are different from one another put on display in their love for one another. Friends, that's exactly what God and His Spirit has caused us to do. If you want to experience the Spirit, let me tell you, it's better than a song and a dance. It's the person sitting next to you. Love them as Christ has loved them, and that will show the power of the gospel. Let's pray.